It's great to have you guys here. Uh, we are quickly approaching the end of our series on 1 Corinthians 13. We will have spent 10 weeks together in this chapter, and uh, I'm almost kind of sad to see it come to an end. I've really enjoyed walking through it with you. I hope that you've enjoyed it as well, and I hope that more than just enjoying and getting good information and good content uh, of, of learning what the scriptures say, I hope that it's transforming your love. I hope that it's making your love for people different. The love that you're expressing here with your church family, the love that you're expressing in your families, with your spouses, with your children. I hope that it's transforming the way that you're thinking about how you love people. And so let's review for a second last week. Last week we were in chapter 13, verse 7, and we said that verse 7 is the crescendo of the chapter. It's the, it's the peak the pinnacle of Paul's detailed description of agape love that we have been walking step by step through. And in verse 7, Paul gives us four positive characteristics of what love does. In the previous verses, he has told us what love does not do. And in verse 7, he explains to us what love does. And what it, not just what it does, but what it always does does meaning in every opportunity the first thing love always protects that means that it kindly covers over the sins of others to protect them from shame from public disgrace from scandal um, it describes when we gracefully protect those who hurt us from public shame by not revealing every little juicy detail of the sin in their life. And we said that that's very much the way God deals with us in his grace as we battle the sin in our life. There is some sin, secret sin that we all have that God graciously covers over and lets it stay hidden as he deals with us personally in his grace. And we should extend that same love to other people. Not to drag them out into the street of public uh, opinion as the Pharisees did to the woman who was caught in adultery. The second thing love always does is it trusts. That means that it chooses to believe the best in other people. It gives people the benefit of the doubt rather than waiting on them to mess up, waiting on them to fail. We believe in the very best about a person. So love not only believes the best, but it covers the worst. Then Paul said that love always hopes. That means that love is optimistic. That even when people mess up, even when they fail, love never completely gives up. Even when a season has come to an end, we always hope that in what the Lord can do in that person later on down the road. And it's not that we put our hope in people because people will fail us. But the hope that we need and the hope that we have is in Jesus. That's what we just sang about, right? All my hope is in Jesus. It's not in me. If your hope, I said this to the 830 crowd, if your hope in me as your pastor is for me to get it right all the time, then that's not very hopeful. Um, it, it, we don't hope necessarily in each other's ability to do things on our own. But love always hopes 
because it knows that God can do greater things through us that we can't do on our own. And then the fourth thing is that love perseveres, which that simply means that love doesn't die. You can't kill it. Uh, it comes back and continues to live and live and live and fight and fight through the fiercest, most violent attacks. And the greatest illustration of that is what we're going to celebrate on Easter morning. The fact that love perseveres. I, I recently came to the realization of, of the moment that Jesus came back to life in the tomb. You know that there was a moment that he was completely dead. There was no life in him at all. And then in the very next moment, something happened. That Jesus went from being completely dead to all of a sudden he inhaled that first breath and his lungs filled up with air. In that moment, he started breathing. It was, that's the resurrection. And I, I think one of the greatest moments is not necessarily, of course we love the, the stone being rolled away, that's a big deal, and him coming out and revealing himself, all of those things are a big deal, but I just think, wow, the power of the moment to have been in the tomb, to watch Jesus' dead, still body, to watch that chest rise up that first time. And hear him and feel him breathe that first breath. The fact that love doesn't die. You can try to kill it, but you can't. Because it always perseveres. So now, we're going to look at verses 8 through 10 this morning. We're going to look at three verses. <laughs> in one Sunday. Uh, that's a big deal. We've been taking sometimes two weeks on one verse. Well, we're going to look at three verses this morning. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10. And I want to remind you, part of the purpose that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth and, and the purpose for this chapter, one of the things he's addressing is the church's pursuit of spiritual gifts that were showy and public, the ones that were up front. And they were pursuing those gifts not for the edification of the church, not for the building up of the church, which is what the gifts are designed to do. But they were pursuing the, the public, upfront, showy gifts because they wanted to feed their own egos. They were doing it out of selfish pride. I want you to think about for a minute, maybe growing up or maybe even right now in your life, if a, a season, and we all fall into this, and we all experience seasons like this in our life, when you have become so enamored, so fascinated, so obsessed with a particular thing or a particular person, that you completely forgot about the reality of everything else around you. Uh, sometimes maybe even growing up as, as teenagers, sometimes we have the capacity or maybe we've known somebody who has gotten involved in a relationship and all of a sudden the only thing that exists is that relationship and everything else around them just completely falls away and they, and they, com they just completely lose touch on all the other reality around them because we're so focused on this one thing. For some of us, it could be relationships. For sometimes, it could be money. It could be your job. It could be uh, lots of different things. But when we become so enamored with something that we focus so much energy and attention on it 
that we forget about everything else around us. That's kind of what is happening to the Corinthian church. They are comparing themselves to one another. They're chasing after these gifts because they want to be edified in front of all the other people in the church. And they had forgotten the most important thing, which is what Paul is describing here in chapter 13, love. They've forgotten love because they were chasing after these gifts. So look at chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul begins verse 8, love never fails. Little amen there? There you go. It never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Now, Paul starts verse 8 by restating the same characteristic of love that he ended verse 7 with. What was the last thing he said in verse 7? Love always perseveres, right? So he begins verse 8 by saying the same thing he just said at the end of verse 7, but in a new way. Because love perseveres, that means it never fails. And we want to take that phrase real quickly and make sure we understand exactly what Paul is saying when he says love never fails. The word for fails that he uses there means literally to fall to the ground or to collapse in decay. It's the image of, of the leaves in the fall when they turn colors and they turn brown and they break loose from the trees and they fall to the ground as they die. As the petals of a flower die and fall to the ground. That's that image of fail, that something falls to the ground in decay or death says that that never happens to love. And then the word never in that phrase is important too. It's the time. It tells us when love fails. And love fails when? Never. Absolutely never. Never is an eternity word. It means that there will never be a time in all of past, present, or any time in the future eternity where love will ever fall to its death. Love will never, ever, ever cease to live. That's what Paul means when he says love never fails. But we can sometimes misinterpret what he means when he says that. And there's something that we need to, to just be honest about that he doesn't mean. When, when Paul says love never fails, he doesn't mean that love always wins. We would love to think that. And sometimes when we read that, we may interpret it that way and say, wow, he says that love never fails. That means that it, it always wins. It never gets beaten. But the truth is, love doesn't always win. Paul had certainly seen it. He had seen it in marriages. He had seen it in families. He had seen it in the life of this church. That even when love Agape love is shown and faithfully demonstrated. It doesn't always come out on top. Sometimes it loses. And you say, wow, Eric, that's depressing. I thought we were talking about how great love was. And it is great. And it is eternal. And it will never die. And it will never go away. But unfortunately, because 
we are fallen humans, it doesn't always win out. And love didn't always win with Jesus. Jesus himself was love. He was the embodiment of love itself. And in every interaction that he had with people, he was the perfect demonstration of agape love. Yet, that love didn't always win out in the lives of the people that Jesus loved. You think about the rich young ruler. Jesus had a love for him when he came to Jesus seeking to know how to enter the kingdom. And when Jesus told him in his love, it says that he went away sad. There was the love of Jesus. There was that agape love. And then there was the man's love for his stuff. His love of money. His love of material things. And then on that day, that fake love won out in his life over the love of Jesus. You think about Judas. You think about his life and how the love that Jesus had for him, even in his betrayal but Jesus love for Judas lost and it wasn't able to save Judas from the disgrace and the hopelessness that Judas faced because he had betrayed Jesus so here's a point to remember agape will never die but it doesn't always win it loses when we allow lesser loves to take its place in our lives. You say, well, why does love not always win? It's when we let some other love, some other love besides the love of God, that agape love, when we let some other love that's lesser than that take agape's place in us, then it's not going to win. Too often in our culture today, we throw the words I love you around a lot. And I, I've, I've said before from the pulpit how, how careful I am. And I would always talk to our students and say, be very, very, very careful how you throw that phrase around. Because it is so important and it carries so much weight. But in culture today, it's not uncommon for people to throw the phrase I love you around. Especially in relationships. But unfortunately, what culture means sometimes, when, when the culture says, I love you, what people often mean is, I love me, but I want you. It's not that I really love you, I love me, but I want you. And if you think about that mentality, that's not really love. If I say, I love me and I want you, that's about me. That's about me getting what I want, meeting my needs. But when I say, I love you, that's about you. That's about giving you what you need, giving you what you want. But the world doesn't understand agape love like that. And so sometimes what people really mean is, I love me, but I want you. So after Paul restates the fact that love will always be, so when he says love never fails, he doesn't mean that love always wins. He means that love is never going to die. There's nothing that's going to cease the existence of love. It's eternal and it will always be there. So now he is going to move into the next verses and explain what love will always be greater than. He says that love is the greatest, but 
what are things, and he, he compares. He's going to go into a comparison because sometimes we as humans get so wrapped up in the lesser things, that lesser love that we're talking about. He's going to compare those lesser loves with this agape love and show us why they're so different. And so he compares this endless agape love to these gifts that the church is chasing after. And there are two characteristics about the gifts that they're chasing while they're ignoring love that he's going to bring out in these verses. The first one is that the gifts are temporary. That they're chasing after temporary gifts. Look at verse 8. He says, love never fails. We've established what that means. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. So in verse 8, he mentions three specific spiritual gifts. The gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, and the gift of knowledge. And each of these were spiritual gifts that were active in this time in the church. And they were gifts that the Corinthian church regarded as the most renowned. The ones, the gifts that that everybody wanted, the ones that were most desirable because they were the upfront gifts. They were um, what we would call revelatory gifts in the early church. In, in the early infancy of the church, God would use these spiritual gifts to bring revelation of himself, to reveal truth to the church because the New Testament had not been written yet. We have the New Testament. Truth is revealed to us. There's no new revelation outside of what is in the scriptures for us. But in that time, the the church was so young and the scriptures had not been written and pulled together yet. God would reveal himself through supernatural, miraculous gifts. And so even here, in the early life of the church, Paul says that all three of these gifts, though they are important, And God uses them to reveal himself. They are all temporary. And it's interesting to note that he uses a couple of different verbs. When you start studying the language of these verses. He uses one type of verb to describe the end of prophecy and knowledge. And then he uses a different word to describe the end of tongues. And the difference is this. When he talks about prophecy and knowledge, that term implies that the end of knowledge and prophecy will come by something else that there will something else is going to come that brings an end to knowledge and end to prophecy but the verb he uses to describe tongues is different that word implies the ending of tongues on its own by ceasing to exist and then you'll you'll see the difference in the next verse why he distinguishes between the two. He says tongues is a gift that's going to eventually end by itself. But the other two, it implies that they will last longer than tongues and that there will actually be something else that comes that will be the cause of knowledge and prophecy ceasing. So the emphasis in this verse is the temporary nature 
of the gifts. These are the gifts you remember that the church is clamoring for. They're desiring them. They're, they're, they're pursuing them. They're, even some people are trying to fabricate them for that, for that fake approval, that, that, that fake recognition, that's, that, and, the, and they would even fabricate the gifts. But he says, these things you're chasing after, these things you're pursuing so diligently are temporary. You're neglecting love. You're neglecting agape while you're chasing after these things that aren't even going to last. So he says that the gifts that they're chasing in comparison to love are not permanent. They're temporary. Love is permanent. And then look in verse 9 and 10. Secondly, he says that not only are these gifts temporary, but they're partial. They're incomplete. Look at verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Here Paul is, is saying that the gifts are not only temporary, but they are partial. And I want you to notice... Look at verse 9 for a second. Who makes these gifts incomplete? It's not God that makes them incomplete. For who knows in part? We. And who prophesies in part? We. The, the incompleteness of the gifts is not from God. It's from us. It's, it's our inability to fully grasp and practice them to their fullest. Look at, at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Now these spiritual gifts were and still are a part of the identity of Christ. When we learn and develop our spiritual gifts, that's part of who God made us to be. So we should know, we should discover what our spiritual gifts are, and then we should work to develop them. But they are not the key to fully understanding God, nor should they be our greatest pursuit above all other things. Because of our humanity, our experience with the gifts of the Spirit are partial. Because we are sinful people. But in verse 9, there's another interesting thing I want you to notice. Paul mentions two of the three gifts that he mentions in verse 8. You remember he mentions tongues, he mentions prophecy, and he mentions knowledge in, those, in verse 8. But in verse 9, he only mentions two of the three. And that's because he's going to clarify that distinction in verbs that I talked about before. You remember he said tongues are going to cease on their own. But knowledge and prophecy are going to come to an end because of something else. And so when he gets to verse 9, he only mentions knowledge and prophecy. 
And he says those will come to an end. He says tongues will cease on their own, but something is going to come to stop knowledge and prophecy. And what is that in verse 10? When completeness comes. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part, what? It disappears. It goes away. So there's going to be something that comes that will usher out the gifts of prophecy and knowledge. And it's completeness. Your Bible may say, when the perfect comes. And you say, well, what is that? What does he mean by uh, completeness? What does he mean by perfect? He's talking about what we will be like when we are completely restored and redeemed in our eternal state by God. When everything is made new. When we are in the presence of God, when, when we are in heaven, when there's a completeness. Everything that's incomplete about us in our eternal state, God will bring complete. The gift of knowledge will go away because everything that could be known will be known in the eternal state because God will reveal it to us. We will have that knowledge. And there will be no need for prophecy anymore because everything that would be prophesied would be fulfilled in the eternal state. So all of those things, those two gifts go away. They're, they're partial and they're temporary. And Paul is explaining this to the church because they have such a regard for these gifts. Almost, almost as if they are worshiping the gifts rather than the Lord. And he says, you've got it all wrong. You've got so much energy and focus on these things that are going to go away. They're not going to be around forever. But here's love. And it is going to be here forever. And you are ignoring it. You're completely neglecting it. Who likes coffee? Yeah, very good. We like coffee at our house. I know some of you like coffee a lot. My wife likes coffee. She likes a little bit of coffee with her coffee creamer in the morning. Uh, so, do, so do my son. So does Ben. He's, he's a big coffee uh, creamer drinker. <laughs> with a little bit of coffee in there too. Uh, but we have lots of coffee cups at our house because everybody likes coffee at some point, even Rob. I have this coffee mug. This is my favorite coffee mug. Nobody in the house is allowed to drink out of this mug except me because uh, it was a gift from Kim. And it says, good morning, handsome. <laughs> so uh, this is my uh, feel-good in the morning coffee mug when I'm feeling cruddy or uh, I look in the mirror and see how fat I am. Uh, I can get this and drink my coffee out of this and goes, wow, my wife really loves me. And so this is, this is like my favorite. This is the coffee mug I drink coffee out of when I have time. You know, when I can sit at home and maybe I'm reading something or watching television or I'm still in my pajamas and I actually have time to just sit and drink a cup of coffee, this is my coffee mug. And, uh, and I love it. And we have this kind of cup. But then we have a pack of these cups, too. And these are for the mornings that we don't have time. Uh, We use these more often than we use this uh, because everything's so crazy all the time. So we we invested in these, and these are just uh, paper coffee cups, and we even have the little plastic lids that go on them. We can throw this thing in the Keurig, 
put out a cup of coffee, mix it up, take it with us in the car, and, and we're good. So we've got these two options of, of what we can put our coffee in. I don't know if you are this kind of person, and I'll go ahead and upfront apologize to you if, if you if you find out that you are the person I'm, I'm about to, to talk about, but please know that I don't mean any harm. I love you very much. Um, but do you know those people who will take cups like this or um, their plastic, utensils, like you go, to a, uh, go somewhere to eat, you get takeout, you got plastic forks and knives and stuff that you eat with, and, or their red Solo cups, and they wash them and reuse them over and over and over? Now, if you're that person, listen, I love you with all my heart. But can I just tell you, that's weird. Uh, they, they will take a, a, a cup like this, and, uh, and I know sometimes my, I, I would catch my grandparents doing that sometimes. And I know that's a generational thing. Very much it is. But as, as the years have gone by, we've, we've advanced in disposable things, Right? Disposable cups, disposable forks, knives, utensils, those kind of things. But there are still folks who feel like they need to wash out, you know, wash their plastic cups, wash their, you know, and, and, then, and then reuse them. And if you do that, that's okay. But, uh, but I want you to know that's probably not the best way to do things. Um, I actually did a little bit of research, and I thought, well, what about that? What about those people who like to, you know, I've seen people put their red Solo cups in their dishwasher. And... They're washing them over and over and over and reusing them. I'm like, I don't know if that's really good. I did a little bit of research. I just want to read this to you. Just public service announcement here. Uh, plastic forks and knives are only good for only about up to a week, at which point they're too dirty to reuse. In general, plastic utensils and cups are, are not designed for repeated use or cleaning. Washing them with hot water and soap can cause the edges of the utensil to curl up and create spaces that harbor food particles and encourage rapid bacterial growth. According to Barbara Ingham, a food science professor at the University of Wisconsin, repeated cleaning can degrade the plastic. In general, plastic cutlery and cups are designed for single use, so reusing it isn't a safe way to go. So, don't, don't quit doing it because it's weird. Maybe you shouldn't do it because it's not really safe. But it, we have a coffee pot back here that, that runs during Sunday school, and we have styrofoam cups. Like, you would think I was crazy if we, we went and got a styrofoam cup of coffee, drank my coffee, took it home, washed it with soap and water, and dried it out and put it back in the, back in the pantry. Like, that's kind of silly. Why? Because that cup is made to be disposable. This cup is made to be disposable. We don't wash these at our house. They go in the trash. We drink out of them. They go in the trash because they're made to be disposable. This is not made to be disposable. This is, my, this is my cup. I get on to my children if they drink out of this cup because this is my cup. Um, th we, this, is, this is permanent. This is temporary. We don't treat temporary things like they're permanent. And we shouldn't treat the permanent things as if they're disposable. 
This is the point that Paul is trying to make to the church. We do this so much in our lives. We spend so much time and energy looking after and trying to make temporary things last longer than they're designed to last. But they will eventually disintegrate in the end. God says there are things, Paul says to the church, there are things that you are putting so much effort and energy into that at the end, when completeness comes, they're going to burn up and go away. Because they weren't made to last for eternity. They were made to be temporary and partial. They're going to be disposed of eventually. They're going to be thrown away. But you're putting all your focus in on this stuff when, when there's the permanence of agape love, the eternality of agape love. And this is sitting on your shelf while you're trying to rewash and rewash these temporary things and make them last forever, and they're not ever designed to last forever. This was designed to last forever. So quit putting so much energy into these things and take care of this. Use this. Focus on the things that are going to last for eternity. Church, I just want to say this morning, let's take the energy and the effort and the passion that we're putting into disposable things and turn our attention toward developing and learning and growing in our love more than anything. 